It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's gosh darn right. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a lifetime of lifelines in a languishing world. I'm Joel MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900, almost 1,000 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. We are the dynamic duo, the queen and the codger. And we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a ravenous <laughs> Rottweiler? Well, oh, Ooh, boy, oh, boy. good painful. <laughs> good dog. Good dog. Down boy. Down boy. Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their, their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but what do you do when the ambulance isn't on the way, maybe even heading in the other direction? What do you do? Well, you know what? You show the world that you're smarter than a box full of dodo birds. That's what, <laughs> by learning what to do for injuries and illness and good times or bad. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues in tough times, and they're designed by yours truly, an MD, and hers truly, an advanced registered nurse practitioner. But mostly by hers truly. Mostly by hers truly, she says. That's all right. Compare our kits for contents, for quality, for cost with anybody else's stuff, or just ask anyone who's ever bought one, and you'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Well, where are we going to be in the next couple of weeks we've been traveling around <laughs> well let's see we are in gatlinburg tennessee and it's finally a beautiful day by the way 
and we are going to be driving over to Asheville today right. so we can set up for the Mother Earth News event. It's this weekend, April 28th and 29th, pretty much all day. Lots and lots of educational classes. My goodness. Right. You, could you fill, want to know how to raise goats? <laughs> you can fill every second of the day at these shows by learning something. It's just amazing. But we have a booth, and we would love for you guys to come over and see us. It is a little south of Asheville in a Fletcher, t- tiny town called Fletcher. Called Fletcher. That's right. But we'll be having our entire line of medical kits there for you to see. There will be lots and lots of educational opportunities. Yep. So, or if you in, you're in the area, just come by and say hi. What the heck? Say hi. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Lot of, lots of stuff to look at. Good family-friendly area. No guns. <laughs> so um, the next weekend, we're going to be on the south side of Atlanta. We're going to be at the RK Prepper Show. That's right. Now, and that's a little bit different. That's a survival uh, show. It is. It's more survival. And uh, you will be speaking at 1215 on Saturday, May right? 5th. And we'll have a suture class, a hands-on suture class. Yes. If you're interested in taking a hands-on suture class, wound care, stapling, all that stuff, and learn not only how to do it, but the judgment as to, as to when to do it, well, go to our classes page. Go to doomandbloom.net. And go to our classes page, and you can sign up there. And that class is going to be held on Sunday at the RK Prepper Show. So that's May 6th, and I'm going to do it at 12 noon. So if you want to go to church, you've got plenty of time to go to church, and then come over and take the class. I only have a handful of spots left, so if you folks really want to uh, take that class with us, uh, go ahead and get signed up. Right, you get to keep your instruments and uh, a lot of other Stuff We give you a DVD with all the class information as well. So a lot of good stuff that you'll see there. And we'll be traveling the country later in the year. We'll talk about our schedule then. Absolutely. Well, let's see what we got. Maybe contact. That's, that's <laughs> right. to get that's a hold right. of us. That's right. What's the deal, Hot Wheels? We, are, <laughs> we learn as much from you guys out there as you do from us. So why not connect with us? It's easy. And here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Why, thank you, sir. We have email, of course. You guys can email us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Spelled Out, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. We have an Instagram. I actually put up an Instagram. Oh, yay. Cool. Yesterday. What's, oh, how did people get to our Instagram? Uh, that is Doom and Bloom Medical. Doom and Bloom Medical. Doom and Bloom Medical. And, of course, there's a YouTube channel that we have. It's yep. DR Bones Nurse Amy and all sorts of other stuff. And we have, of course, our other podcasts all about current events, American Survival Radio, broadcasts from a number of radio stations throughout the country, both uh, land and interweb. Interweb. <laughs> That's absolutely right. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about something I read in the Wall Street Journal. You know that the Wall Street Journal says that maybe you no longer have to uh, fast before having surgery. Oh, seriously? Yeah, according to uh, a Wall Street Journal article by a uh, physician, an academic physician, Mm -hmm. says that uh, if you do not eat before having surgery, it's like a 200-pound person burns about... 
3,000 calories and loses a significant amount of muscle stores, carbohydrates during an operation. And they ask, would you tell an athlete not to eat or drink after midnight before the big race? Obviously. Ah. Oh. Uh-huh. And so hospitals in Europe actually are now allowing carbohydrate-rich drinks before surgery with pretty good outcomes. So that, I think, okay, is so going liquid. to be something. Yes. Okay. Well, I can understand not having the solids because they're at least when I was in school, we had the risk of aspiration. Right. If and somebody vomited during surgery, of course, you don't have your reflexes and you have this tube that's keeping your airway open so you can't shut the airway off and not regurgitate things. It just doesn't work that way. So you can get things into your lungs. Right. That indeed was an original reason for having people not eat before surgery back in the 1850s when they inst- first instituted that And they never got rid practice. of it, but still no solids. That's but right. I can understand the liquids because your stomach absorbs liquids pretty quickly. Well, I'll tell you one thing, that if you encourage patients to load up on the right nutrients like people that are running a race or preparing for a race. It could mm-hmm. help to make those procedures a little safer and perhaps easier to recover from. So that, I think, is something new. Right now, I don't think that is the standard, but it is made no. something that might one, day, <laughs> might one day indeed be that way. Hey, you might be considering a camping trip this summer. You know, the school year is winding down and people are starting to Look towards the summer and see what they can do with the kids that would help broaden their horizons, have fun, and maybe teach them some skills, some wilderness skills. I think that would be an awesome thing to do. And it's important to make that camping trip a memorable one in a good way. There are a lot of ways that you could make a camping trip memorable in a terrible way. And one of them, of course, is getting injured or winding up not being prepared for the elements. There's so many. (laughs) That's true. Well, the skills to make things go right during a camping trip are similar to the uh, activities that are required for daily survival in times of trouble. And the good news is that once you learn these, pretty much these lessons last a lifetime, like riding a bicycle. And that's why it's so sad that organizations like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts are in a sort of decline because there's no greater gift that you can give young people than the ability to be self-reliant. Wait, did you did you say that on purpose? I did. To to get me started. Oh, what yeah. was the conversation we had yesterday? We yeah, drove we around talked a park. All about that. Yeah. We drove around a park yesterday just for fun because we like parks and we like to see nature, and we were discussing Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and how I personally think there should just be Scouts. And that all the skills that the Boy Scouts learn should be taught to the Girl Scouts. And no offense to the Girl Scouts, because I don't even know what they're teaching these days. But I know when I was a Girl Scout, it was all froofy and, I don't know, (laughs) sissy-fied. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) How to sew, how to be a hostess. I don't know. All right. Well, that, that can be, like, extracurricular. But the main skills of what the Boy Scouts learn, girls should be learning the same thing. And I don't necessarily mean that... It should be boys and girls together. I don't care if they're separated. But the curriculum that the Girl Scouts are being taught needs to go away, and there just needs to be scouts. They can have single-sex groups, single-sex camp camping trips. I don't care. But the same thing that the boys are learning, they need to be ta- teaching the girls. 
And what about exactly the same thing? And what about people that aren't boys or girls, but are one of the one of the fourteen other sexes? I don't care. Pick sexes that I don't care. Pick a side. (laughs) There's only two sides at this point. Just pick one. All right. Well. I mean, I, oh gosh, of course, that's not politically correct because I don't know. You might are, be some neutral again, thing. are you being incorrect politically? What, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying is that the Boy Scouts have an amazing educational curriculum and every girl should know exactly what the Boy Scouts are learning. Every single girl. So if they get dropped in the middle of the woods, they know how to find their way out. They know how to make shelter and make fire and find water. Mm-hmm. And and make Purify things water, out of right? nature. Yeah. Right. Know well, what's edible, what's not edible. I totally agree with how, you. 100%. And how to get yourself out of bad situations. And Absolutely. they teach all kinds of awesome things. And every single girl needs to know that. Now, of course. And then they all need to go into one year of military service after they graduate high school. But that's for another topic. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, and I have to talk about that on American Survival okay. Radio. Well, I'll tell you what, let's talk a little bit about. Poorly planned campouts, which become memorable in a way that you don't want. Wait, here's one. Especially if somebody gets injured. So we're going to talk about how not to get injured and how to stay safe. Yes, but before you go, what is the one thing you need to check out before you leave for your trip? The weather. The weather. The weather. That's part of what I'm going to talk about. Sure, absolutely. Pre-planning will save a lot of heartaches. Absolutely. Pre-plan not only... Headaches and heartaches. Not only your medical supplies, but... But what things can possibly happen? And I know you're going to discuss some of those things. Absolutely. Well, I mean, but the good news is that a few preparations and an evaluation of the limits that your party's ha- party has, you know, depending on the age of people and, uh, you know, their skills, they'll, if you can get these right, you'll enjoy a very wonderful outing with people you care about. And maybe you can impart some skills to the next generation that'll serve them well in good times or bad. Now, if you haven't been camping much, don't start by attempting to hike the Donner Trail or <laughs> the Appalachian Trail or something like that. Begin by taking day trips to national parks or maybe a nearby lake. Set you know up. what? I really like that advice. <laughs> yeah, that is good advice, isn't it? <laughs> I'm just loaded. I got a million of them. <laughs> Absolutely. So set up your tent and a campfire. See how it goes when you don't have to necessarily stay in the woods overnight. And once you have that under your belt, start planning your overnight outings. Now, whatever type of camping you do, always assess the capabilities and general health of the people in your party. You got old folks, you got young kids. These people are the ones that are going to determine the limits of your activity. And the more ambitious you are, the more likely you're going to tax the kids and the oldsters that won't be able to handle it. And exactly. guess what happens? Disappointment, bad time, injuries could be the end result. Now, important first steps to a safe camping trip is knowledge, as Amy says, about the weather and the terrain that you're going to be encountering. Uh, Talk with park rangers, consult guidebooks, check out online sources, so many things. And some specific things you need to know, temperature ranges, not just average temperature, temperature ranges for a particular area. Uh, the amount of rain or snowfall, uh, the, where the trails are at campsite facilities, uh, animal issues, plant issues uh, like, like poison ivy, things like that, insect issues like mosquitoes, uh, the availability of clean water. That's important. And how to get help Excellent. in an emergency. So that's going to be very important. And that makes sense because if you're in a really remote area with a lot of mountains, you may just not have a cell phone tower. And so you may consider having a CB or CV 
I don't know if anybody remembers those. <laughs> the <laughs> truckers two. know what I'm talking about. A ham radio. Right. Or handy can, uh, handy talkie, right? Exactly. Or walkie-talkie. Or if, if, if you have the money, a satellite phone. Wow, yeah. A satellite phone would be great, So, But too. some way to get a hold of the outside world, if you know where you're going, is pretty remote. And a lot of these parks, if you look at the cellular data, like some of these plans like Sprint, and they show you the, the cellular coverage. Right. There's full areas that have no cell phone coverage. And it almost looks like right around Yellowstone uh, National Park. Right. That so area. if you're any, anywhere in those areas. A lot, a lot of parts of the West. You you're may right. not have cell phones. So you're going to have to be super careful. Well, let's talk about some basic things. Of course, a very common error that campers and survivalists make by the way, is not having the right clothing and equipment for the weather and the terrain. If you haven't planned for the environment you're camping in, you have made the environment your enemy. And believe me, it's a pretty formidable one. Spring and fall may have the most uncertainty with regards to weather and temperature, but you can encounter storms just about any time. Always take enough clothing to allow layering to deal with the unpredictability of the weather. Now, conditions in high elevations, remember, lead to wind chill factors that can cause hypothermia exposure. If the temperature is 50 degrees, but the wind chill factor is 30 degrees, you lose heat from your body as if it were below freezing. Be aware that temperatures at night especially may be surprisingly cold. Watch Naked and Afraid, and you'll find that out. <laughs> Even in tropical areas, yeah. it can get pretty darn cold at night. Uh, in, in cold weather, you want your family clothed, of course, and, and clothed, <laughs> but clothed in, in tightly woven water-repellent material. So, wait. So, what you're saying is don't go to a nudist colony in Maine no, in January. Probably not a good idea, right? <laughs> okay. You know what? Note to self. Yes. <laughs> it's something something to keep in mind. So anyhow, water repellent material, that was really good. Uh, of course, uh, some kind of windbreaker. A wool, by the way, holds body heat better than cotton does, just if you didn't know that. You probably knew that already. Uh, some synthetic materials work very well. Gore-Tex, very popular for skiing, ski clothing, uh, and just add and remove layers as you need it. Now, if you're at the lake front or the uh, seashore in summer, your main problem is going to be heat exhaustion and burns. Make sure your family members wear sunscreen and play and put on the sunscreen 15 minutes before going out in the sun to allow it to absorb into the skin. Uh, hats, light cotton fabrics, that's important. Plan anything strenuous you're going to do for the mornings when it's cooler. And in any type of weather, make sure everyone stays well hydrated. Dehydration causes more rapid deterioration and physical condition in pretty much any type of stressful circumstance. Make sure that you allow a, pound, a pint of fluids an hour for anybody that's going to be active. Now, the most important item of clothing is perhaps your shoes. If you got the wrong shoes for the outing, you are going to regret it, buddy. If you're in the woods, high tops that can fit into your pants legs, that's probably the most appropriate thing. If you go uh, with a lighter shoe in hot weather, Vibram soles, those are your best bet. Vibram, V-I-B-R-A-M. Uh, high tops for the for the woods aren't just uh, because of poison ivy. You know, there are ticks that can cause Lyme disease. As a matter of fact, there's a very high concentration of population of ticks. Have, ticks have grown because of increased deer populations. And so be aware of that. And that's another good reason to be wearing high tops with the pants tucked in. Now, 
Choosing the right clothing isn't just for weather protection. If you have the kids wear bright colors, you'll have an easier time keeping track of their whereabouts. Long sleeves and pants, of course, are also very important. Uh, 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 not only long pants, which I was mentioning before, but long sleeves. It's very good against insect bites that can transmit Lyme disease and other kinds of insect-borne illnesses. And we know how easily uh, ticks will jump on you. Absolutely. Remember we were just going through that little field? Yep. When we were in uh, Concord, Massachusetts, yep. uh, going through the Minuteman's Trail, Yep. we wound Cut up Cut through getting... a little field. Uh-huh. I mean, the grass, was, it wasn't grass. It was some sort of, I don't know, what would you call turf it? Turf of some sort. It was yeah. grass. What do you mean? You don't think it was grass? It was some sort of weed or All some right. sort of straw. Well, grass is some sort of weed okay. to me. Okay. <laughs> Just between you Anyway, and it wasn't very high, and usually we think of ticks hanging off of trees, dropping on us. But these things must have jumped on us from that because we all we did was go from the historic building, the little museum, to across the field to the trail. Right, just a few hundred yards. and uh, I had, what, three on me? Yeah. One was on my arm, yep. one was on my pants leg, and one was on my shoe trying right. to crawl in. So it's especially... Or my boot, I should say. This summer, especially important to watch out for ticks. Now, a real estate agent's motto is what? Location, location, location. And that's also true when it comes to camping. You always should scout prospective campsites by looking for broken glass, other garbage that can pose a hazard. Sadly, you can't depend on other campers to pick up after themselves, so you never know what you'll find there. You just have to probably check it out beforehand if you are if you live in nearby, I w- this is what I would do. Uh, of course, look for evidence of animals uh, that are nearby. If you see large droppings that may be related to bears, for example, or if you see a lot of beehives or wasp nests, well, you n- know you've got some hazards to deal with there you should always advise the children to stay away from any animals even the cute little fuzzy bear cubs because if there are if there are any of those kind of little baby animals around there's probably a big angry mama that is going to object to your messing with them if there are berry bushes nearby by the way you can bet it's on the menu for bears despite this things that birds and animals can eat aren't always safe for humans so worry when you see berry bushes make sure it's a berry that you can identify if it's a blackberry it's a blackberry if it's a salmon berry it's a salmon berry or or blueberry it's a blueberry but if it's some weird kind of berry well you want to know something it may not be a plant you should eat and speaking of plants your show is learn to identify the plants in in your environment that should be avoided and this especially includes poison ivy poison oak poison sumac Show your kids pictures of the plants so they can steer clear of them. And of course, the old saying is, leaves of three, let it be. And so that usually is a way to identify uh, poison ivy and uh, poison oak. Uh, Fells naphtha soap, if you've, ever, uh, if you've never heard of that, Fells naphtha soap was one of the early detergents if you ever see if you see a magazine we from, just looked for one yeah right from one that your world war ii had. some of our old timey magazines that we have here in the old library uh it shows fell nafta soap chips were <laughs> the detergent to put in your washing machine or the machine. soap or, or the right, soap or the soap itself <laughs> and it was a golden bar and guess what it is still a golden bar and you'll find in it, a number of our medical kits and it has the exact same packaging right 
And exact same wrapper. And no just, change whatsoever. And it's especially effective in removing toxic resin from plants like poison ivy, Absolutely. poison oak, and poison sumac from skin and also clothes if you ex- suspect exposure. The quicker you clean with the Fels nap- naphtha soap, mm-hmm. the more likely you'll be able to get off the toxic oils. Um, by the way, if you have if you've never heard of Fels naphtha, it's spelled F E L S and then a hyphen and naphtha N A P T H A soap. Now you've got to build your fire and establish fire pits if you can away from dry brush. Remember in drought conditions, a lot of places are in drought conditions, especially in the west there's probably 40 or 50 wildfires going on as we speak in parts of the west. And so, you know, in drought conditions, consider using, let's say, a portable stove instead of making a big old fire. Of course, children are fascinated by fires, so watch them closely or you'll be dealing with burn injuries. That's, that's certainly something that can happen. Uh, food, to avoid an, uh, it getting into by animals, you should hang it up in trees away from where animals can get to. Remember, they're drawn to odors, so try to use resealable plastic containers. Now, if you camp near a water source, remember that even the clearest mountain stream may harbor parasites that cause diarrheal disease, dehydration, all sorts of bad, bad things. So water purification is basic to any outdoor outing. There are iodine tablets that serve this purpose, um, water purification tablets with chlorine, uh, portable filters like the Life Straw or the Mini Sawyer. These are light, take up almost no space or, or weight in your pack and are very, very effective. Uh, although it's a little time consuming, you can boil local water, of course, a good idea if you don't have anything else to avoid trouble. So those are some things that are very important to do to make sure you stay safe and stay healthy. Now, few people can look back to their childhood and not remember a time when they lost their bearings, when they got lost in the mall or got lost in uh, on a hike or something like that. You know, your kids should always be aware of landmarks near the camp or on trails. Point them out to them regularly that is very important a great skill to teach the youngsters is how to use a compass make sure they have one on them at all times they're not expensive or at least you can you can find expensive compasses but you know most of them aren't that expensive which is another reason they should do the boy scouts yes an excellent reason to do boy. you know you can get girl scouts probably girls into boy scouts now just say they identify as a boy there you go yep what are they going to do say no Yep, I identify as a... Uh, I mean, not that the girl does, but just so she can learn the skills. Well, I identify as a goat. A, an old <laughs> an old goat. <laughs> By the way, you know oh, what, what's a great goodness. item to give uh, every kid, and maybe every adult, is a whistle. Some loud whistle they can blow if, if you get separated from them and you're concerned. You know, three blasts of a whistle, that's the universal, universal signal for help. Tweet, tweet, tweet. And I don't mean on your cell phone. I'm talking on, <laughs> uh, with the whistle. That's funny. And, you know, if lost kids, by the way, stay put in a secure spot. Don't roam around because, you know, you, you're a moving target and it's going to be harder to find you if, if you do. Of course, if you have cell phone service where you are, that's awesome. You get, keep your cell phone around with you, as a matter of fact. Um, bugs, again, even kids in protective clothing many times will wind up with insect bites. Important supplies to carry are antihistamines like Benadryl, sting relief pads. We have those in our kits. 
calamine lotion to deal with allergic reactions, and of course, asking your doctor for a prescription for an EpiPen is a very good idea, as they're meant to be used by the average person, doesn't take a doctor to use them, and they're very effective for severe reactions to toxins caused by bee stings or poison ivy or pretty much just about anything. And we've talked about uh, these kind of allergic reactions, which are also called anaphylaxis, many times in past shows, and you'll find it all over the website at doomaboom.net. Uh, Citronella-based products, those are very helpful to repel insects. Put it on clothing, though, instead of skin. It seems to absorb too easily whenever possible. It lasts longer on clothing. You might not know that. Absolutely. Uh, now, so another thing you might consider um, is the lemon eucalyptus yes. oil. And that one is FDA-approved. That That's right, and EPA-approved. And re- repellents using DEET are, can also be used, except on children that are less than two. And you probably should Good point. always make sure that those kids are well-dressed uh, so, so they can avoid bites. Now, don't inspect and, don't forget to inspect daily for ticks or the uh, bullseye pattern rash that you sometimes see in Lyme disease. And I mean it when I say daily. If you remove the tick in the first 24 hours or so, it rarely passes the Lyme disease onto you. So that's important. It's, it's those... Ticks that stay on for 36 hours, 48 hours, it wind up causing Lyme disease. And so uh, that's why a daily inspection to make sure there are no ticks, maybe a shower. If if you have the ability to have a shower, that would be awesome. So let's talk a little bit about what I think you should have in your first aid kit. And so, of course, insect repellents make sense, a way to sterilize water. These are things that we've talked about already. But besides that, you're going to want to carry specific Things like antiseptics, antiseptics to clean wounds, iodine pads, alcohol pads, those are, are very useful. BZK, benzalkonium chloride, that's also very good. BZK, uh, bandages, of course, of various types and sizes, uh, roller gauze, roller pa- uh, uh, ABD pads, moleskin, uh, second skin, uh, ace wraps. Butterfly closures, those are all very useful. Cold packs, the kinds of shake-and-break kinds, so you can shake them or crack them, and they crack get em. cold. Right, <laughs> crack them. And they reduce you too, you swe- actually fold them in half and then pop them. Right, and it reduces swelling, so yep. that's a really good thing to have. Uh, splints, of course, so you have, have splints that are very compact nowadays but are 36 inches long. One of the things that we teach in our class is how to place them in different areas mm-hmm. of the body so that they help immobilize injuries so that's important uh burn gel non-stick dressings like telfa pads t-e-l-f-a these pads will not stick to burns which are very painful to remove uh, normal regular gauze pads so that's important you might want to have a thermometer you might want to have uh some gloves uh some people are allergic to latex so try to get the nitrile gloves n-i-t-r-i-l-e uh, triangular bandages with safety pins to serve as a sling. Uh, you can use a bandana, a long, a long bandana if, as an alternative there. Uh, bandage scissors or EMT shears so you can get through clothing and, and see what a bad injury might look like. Uh, tweezers to help remove splinters and ticks. Uh, maybe an antibiotic cream. Uh, an oral antihistamine like a Benadryl might be a good thing to have. Of course, we mentioned already uh, an EpiPen. Tylenol, Advil, aspirin, all these are good pain medicines, also useful for fevers, uh, some 
steroidal cream, uh, over-the-counter stuff like 1% hydrocortisone cream that's good to decrease inflammation and so on. I'm sure you have some other ideas of what you would want in your kit, but I think that's a, a good start. You know start. what? You have a very good list. Good start. A good start, absolutely. Did you mention some sting relief? Sting relief pads. We mentioned them earlier, and so it's something that might would be a good idea. Yeah, I'm just thinking a lot of bug bites. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, At indeed. least from what we went camping down here in Florida. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, boy. And so, you know, there are probably special issues that may some members of your families may have, especially those with chronic medical problems. Mm-hmm. But, you know, make sure that you you have the, the items that we just talked about. Add more customized kits so that it makes sense for you and your family. And these... All these items I mentioned are really good components of a survival medics kit as well. So in an emergency, the most important thing to do, stay calm. You're going to be armed with it. If you have this kit uh, that I mentioned, then you'll find we have these kits on our website, but you can make them yourself. I completely encourage you to do that. At least you'll be armed with the materials that would make sense for these kinds of outings. Remember to act quickly and wash wounds thoroughly. Have a plan of action, and you will be educated. And your own education, that is as important as your kids. Don't fail to take a first aid course so you have the knowledge needed to deal with medical issues on the trail. If you do this, you have the best chance to have a happy and safe camping trip with your family this summer. Now let's talk a little bit about some things you might find on the trail. Of course, uh, in the summer, warm weather. Uh, you're going to find yourself outdoors a lot, activities, and, and in a survival situation, you would also, as well as you can imagine, and imagine with activities like gathering wood for fuel, foraging, hunting, all that stuff required to keep body and soul together. And in warm weather, you might find yourself face to face or maybe face to ankle with a snake. Yep, snakes. They are all over the place. This is there's very few places that do not have snakes and they are mostly out in warm weather. Most snakes aren't poisonous, but a few are, including some species that are common to North America. And I must say that the term poisonous snake is probably incorrect because a venom, which is what a snake has, and poison is not, these are not the same thing. Poisons are absorbed in the gut from eating it or ingesting it, or through the skin, which can be absorbed through the skin. But Venom has to be actually injected into tissues or blood via fangs of, a, let's say, a poisonous snake or a venomous snake uh, or a stinger from a bee or a wasp. And interestingly enough, it's usually not dangerous to drink snake venom unless you happen to have a cut or a sore in your mouth. So they, it's probably not, you can't say the same, same thing about poison, arsenic and things like that. But having said that, please don't try this out at home. Do not try to drink snake venom. It is, interestingly enough, probably not going to kill you, but probably not a great idea either. Uh, venomous, snake, venomous snake bites have a, a pretty distinct appearance. They have these hollow fangs, big teeth basically, at the front of the mouth. There's one on each side of the jaw, and this differs from non-venomous snakes. Their teeth has a more uniform appearance. The, uh, the venomous snakes have the big fangs in the in the front and maybe some smaller teeth in back and non-venomous snakes have teeth that are about the same size all the way around and uh, I wrote an article about this at doomandbloom.net and I actually put a picture up of what a venomous snake bite looks like and there's also a photo of a venomous snake bite 
uh, and also what a non-venomous snake bite looks like. Now, snakes are most active during the summer, as I mentioned, so you're going to find most bite injuries occurring then. But not every bite from a venomous snake transmits toxins to the victim. You may be surprised to find that 25 to 30% of these bites are going to be dry or and show little or no effect. And that could be, it's hard to say why that is, could be because of the short duration of time the snake has its fangs in its victim, or whether maybe the snake had bitten another animal shortly beforehand and in an act of predation. Uh, and many, many other snake bites, there are snake bites that are dry, they have no venom, and there are most other snake bites are also what they call slight envenomations. In other words, only a small amount of venom goes in and they resolve without any major interaction intervention. Now, in most cases, it's not hard to tell whether there's venom in the bite. Usually, snake bites containing venom tend to cause a painful burning sensation pretty much almost immediately, and swelling at the site may begin as soon as maybe five minutes afterwards and can start traveling up the affected area to the body core. Now, the two types of snakes to worry about in North America, at least, are the pit vipers and the elephids. In uh, Europe, you'll have adders, also A-D-D-E-R-S, uh, of the two in North America, the one that most, uh, is most responsible for the grand majority of venomous bites are pit vipers. Pit vipers are like rattlesnakes, uh, water moccasins, those kinds of uh, critters, and they're identified by the presence of a heat-seeking pit organ uh, between the eye and the nostril on both sides of the head. That's why they call them pit vipers, and uh, probably more easily recognizable by a triangular-shaped head and slit-like eyes. Now, rattlesnakes, of course, are going to have rattles, right? That makes sense. Uh, so they, those rattles will make noise when they're threatened. That uh, must be a very ominous sound. I think maybe I heard one or two when I was a kid. Or maybe I imagined it. <laughs> are they in Georgia? Yes. Uh, there are lots, lots is Southern, uh, I seem to remember yeah. a couple rattlesnakes oh. sounds. Oh, yeah. We owned four acres when I was growing up. There are more rattlesnakes in, in North America than there are pretty much anywhere else in the world. And you can't say the same thing about the, <laughs> the other ones. Uh, oh, we'll talk about those in a second. I wanted to say, okay. I don't want to uh, forget to say this about pit viper bites. Pit viper bites have a tendency to look bruised and blistery at the site of the wound. And you may notice numbness after after some initial pain. You may notice uh -huh. some numbness pretty quickly, and, right? And and this will occur within a few minutes. Uh, you might feel some weird sensations on on your lips, for example, mm -hmm. or on your face. Some people describe a metallic or rubbery taste in their mouth. Uh, and serious bites, though, from these guys. If you have a serious what they call envenomation, that may cause actual spontaneous bleeding from the nose or the gums irregular heart rhythms, difficulty breathing. So it can really, you know, if you get a lot of venom in you, wow. then you could be in pretty big trouble. Sounds awful. Now, those are the pit vipers. The other type is called elipid. The elipids include cobras and mambas and all sorts of uh, snakes that just, we don't have here. I just hate all snakes. I'm yeah. sorry. I, I don't care if they're friendly, I, if they're snuggly. Well, I don't know. I know a lot of people own snakes. Yeah, well, I, they just know, creep me out. Now, have you ever looked at a snake and said, "Oh, you're so cute"? Yeah, ever. Uh, little Seriously? baby, some little baby snakes. Oh yeah, that's true. We have little grass snakes. Yeah. 
Well, and, and we do save those. Yes. We don't hurt them. Yeah, I don't. If feel they're trapped in our patio, we make sure we get them out. I don't kill any of the snakes. So we have some water moccasins in the lake. The only thing there. I'm actively kill is two things: mosquitoes, and those bufu frog tadpoles. Yes. Or the adult cane frog. toads. The nasty, the one that killed our dog. Right. We had our boy and our girl. Yeah. Corgis killed yeah. the boy. Yeah, that's true. They, they when when a cane when a dog bites a cane that toad, what happens is that it has a whitish secretion that comes from some organs on its what looks like a shoulder, I guess, uh, and it causes a major effect on the cardiovascular system of a frog. I mean, of, I mean of a dog yes. rather, and because of the frog or the cane toad that. Uh, is really really dangerous and and that's a poison right not a venom that's right exactly exactly right because it's ingested and not injected exactly <laughs> there you go very good well before that's we, a good example moving right? on i just wanted to yes i just want to talk about the uh, other type of venomous snake and that's the elipids i mentioned that they include cobras and mambas but they also include the colorful coral snake coral snakes appear very similar to their look-alike, uh, the coral snake is venomous. The non-venomous version is a king snake. And bo- both of these types of snakes have red, yellow, and black bands and are commonly confused with each other. The old saying goes, red touches yellow, kill a fellow. Red touches black, venom it lacks. That, In other words, if the red band is next to the yellow band on the skin of the snake, it's a deadly venomous coral snake. If the red band on the snake touches the black band, it's a non-venomous king snake. And so it's important to know that this old saying applies to coral snakes, but only to coral snakes in North America. Coral snake bites are a little different. They don't cause as much bruising, but they are what they call neurotoxic, and they cause mental and nerve issues such as twitching, confusion, uh, slurred speech, Nerve damage may cause difficulty with swallowing and breathing. Sometimes it causes complete paralysis. could be very life-threatening. Luckily, there were, in the year 2013, only 73 coral snake bites reported in the U.S. Most of the snake bites are going to be from either non-venomous snakes or from pit vipers, which are certainly plenty, plenty dangerous enough. An ounce of prevention, they say, is worth a pound of cure. I fully agree with that. Uh, High-top boots and long pants, as I mentioned, for camping. Uh, Always a sound strategy when hiking in the wilderness. It's important to be aware of where you're putting your hands and feet, so be especially careful around areas where snakes might like to hide. They like to hide in hollow logs, under rocks, old shelters. Uh, I remember seeing one in a a shelter along the Appalachian Trail once, uh, wearing sturdy work gloves would be a wise precaution if you can't avoid these places. Now, if you let snakes know that you're nearby, they tend to leave the area. Most of them aren't that brave. <laughs> and you might... So, snakes are really you shouldn't chickens. Be that, yeah, well, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't be that brave either, so I don't think. So, you're saying snakes are really chickens so, snake, in the, a snake skin. The famous chicken snake, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. A very rare, rare and beautiful no, snake. I, I do want to say something for those who do collect snakes. They're not cuddly, but I guess some of them have beautiful colors. I don't like their faces. 
but well, they just like the colors. Out. Well, you had a bearded dragon once. You liked having that just sort of laying on you. And so that's what snakes essentially yeah. do, right? Yeah, that's true. But so. he he didn't slither. <laughs> he didn't slither. No, he he didn't. walked. He did not. It was a little differently. A little different. <laughs> so anyhow, wear work gloves. Good idea if you're going to be poking around these places like hollow logs, old shelters, things like that. If you let snakes know that you're nearby, they usually hit the road. Snakes don't have an outer ear, so yelling doesn't make much sense. But treading heavily, you know, pounding on the dirt as you walk and not not tiptoeing around uh, may create vi- ground vibrations that they actually hear, quote-unquote, I guess, better than uh, you're talking. Now, in warm weather, snakes like to be active at night also. Uh, that means that any nocturnal outdoor activities you might have, they're inadvisable without a good light source. So if, uh-huh. you're, if you're the Blair Witch Project people, <laughs> you probably Beware. should have a good light, light source uh, <laughs> while you're there walking you around in the woods at night. Uh, the standard treatment for a venomous snake bite is something called antivenin or antivenom. Uh, both are actually correct. Antivenin is a animal or human serum or a component of blood that has antibodies which are capable of neutralizing a specific biological toxin, in this case, snake venom. Now, most hospitals will have it, but in survival scenarios, obviously this is going to be a pretty scarce commodity. If there's no uh, no help coming, then you might consider these steps. One, you should keep the victim calm. Uh, Stress increases blood flow, thereby uh, endangering the victim. That's something that's very important. Keep them as calm as possible. Keep them as still as possible also is, is a pretty good idea. Stop all movement of the injured extremity if they were bitten on the leg, for example, because movement transports the venom into the circulation faster. Uh, you want to clean the wound thoroughly to remove any venom that's not deep in the wound. Uh, remove rings and bracelets from affected extremities because there's probably going to be swelling and they might be harder to get off later. You want to position the extremity below the level of the heart. This theoretically slows the transport of venom. Uh, you want if, to wrap the area. Some people don't say not to. Some people do. If you, if you do, wrap with clean, loose bandages like an ace wrap and go further up the limb than you normally would for a sprain. Now, pressure bandaging is thought to be helpful for coral snake bites, but may be risky for pit viper bites because it can cause tissue damage at the site of the bite. In any case, keep the wrapping less tight than when you're dressing a sprained ankle. If it's too tight, the patient's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to reflexively move the limb that's going to spread the venom around. Tourniquets, no good, do a lot more harm than good, so avoid tourniquets in these cases. Uh, you might get a pen and draw, or a sharpie and draw a circle around the affected area. That's important. As time progresses, you're going to see the area shrink if it improves, or you're going to see it grow, the area that's red and swollen, grow or, or, or bruised or blistered, grow if it worsens. And this is, by the way, a good re- strategy to follow for just about any local reaction or infection or abscess or accumulation of blood under the skin, like a hematoma. So this is... A sharpie is indeed a medical supply, so don't don't be afraid to keep a few of them in your backpack. That's a wise move. Uh, the limb should then be rested. Maybe you should immobilize it with a splint or a sling so people don't move it. Less movement there is, the better. And keep that person on bed rest with the bite site lower than the heart for about 24 to 48 hours. And by the way, this strategy also works for bites from venomous lizards like Gila monsters if you're in 
the desert south, uh, desert in the southwest. So that is something that is a pretty good thing. Of course, in normal times, definitely take that person to the hospital if you can. Now, you may have heard that it's appropriate to make a cut in the area of the bite and try to suck out the venom with your mouth. Probably not a good idea. The amount of venom you remove is very little and the bacteria in your mouth is probably gonna introduce an infection, not something that you're going to want to do. There are snake bite kits that are available for your backpack, but these are out of favor with most wilderness medical professionals. There's something called the Sawyer Extractor, which is a uh, suction cup essentially, uh, or, or a syringe with a suction cup tip, so to speak. And it may work to remove some of the venom, but believe it or not, uh, at the present time, it's considered to be not effective enough to eliminate more than just a fraction. So these methods fail mostly due to the speed at which the venom is absorbed in the body. And you may wonder why I haven't suggested antibiotics. I talk about antibiotics a lot but I haven't mentioned it as, a, it as a treatment for snake bite. And interestingly enough, snake bites don't cause infections as frequently as bites from cats, dogs, or humans. As such, antibiotics are used much less often in these circumstances. So some parting thoughts on snake bite. Uh, a snake, by the way, doesn't always slither away after it bites you. It's likely that it still has some more venom that it can inject. So if I were you, I would move out of its territory or abolish the threat in any way you can. Now, of course, to many people, this means that you should kill the snake. But I have to warn you that killing the snake may not be enough. I mean, even cutting the head from the body doesn't always render it harmless. It can reflexively bite for a period of time, and it still has some venom in those fangs. Uh, now, coral snakes and pit vipers, they may respond differently to an encounter with a human. Coral snakes are not as aggressive as pit vipers. They would rather flee than attack. But once they bite you, they have a tendency to hold on in order to inject more venom. So that's something that's important for you to know that it may be hard. You may actually have to pry this snake off you. Now, rattlesnakes, however, and other pit vipers prefer to bite and then let go quickly. But unlike coral snakes and other elephants, pit vipers may be very reluctant to relinquish their territory to you. So it's important to leave the area as soon as you possibly can. Now, snakes, remember, can be dangerous, but they really want to avoid you as much as you want to avoid them. Believe me. So keep an eye out, wear decent gear, and both you and the snake are going to be much, much happier for it. I guarantee it. <laughs> Well, that's about all the time that we have left for this episode of the Survival Medicine Hour. We're, we'll be talking about more outdoor things as time goes on. As Medical, summer gets closer. As and, summer gets closer, and, right? And it actually warms up outside. That's right. That's right. Now, don't forget that you can see our videos on our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. You can uh, read our articles also at doomandbloom.net by the way our doomandbloom.net received the 2016 and 2017 Reader's Choice Award at survivaltop50.com so we're very proud of the content that we are 
providing for our listeners and our readers. So I hope. Well, we work really hard. We do you work especially. really hard. <laughs> I used to work really hard. I'm handling a little more of the store side, but well, boy, that's hard work boy, too. Boy, are you uh, pouring your heart into writing articles for both the website, but also tons of magazines. Oh yeah, we're in Survivor's I mean, Edge the next two or three issues, right? Yeah, you wrote three articles for right? them. We've been in American Survival Guide also this year. So just crazy. So just a, a lot of stuff. We're glad to do it. It's it's uh, fun. It's a lot of fun. A lot of work, but a lot of fun. Well, I've decided the traveling has got to be stuck more with the car riding, though. I'll tell you what, expenses are insane when you fly. Yes. Two airfares, to renting cars, are just so we. That's why we drove to Texas this year. That's right. That, that was our that longest was a, drive that, that we've was ever taken. Actually, a lot of fun. We get to stop by uh, one of the Civil War battle areas, right, Vicksburg. That yep. was very interesting. Of course, folks, I'm riding along with a history professor here. He's not only a <laughs> medical doctor, but he's quite knowledgeable with wars and who fought with who and when and oh my goodness gracious it's amazing so it's a lot of fun when i go to these places and you can share this knowledge with me and and i love it it's living history and you're learning it well if you don't learn from history you're going to repeat history you're right there's lots of parts of history that you don't want to repeat that is for sure listen thank you guys so much for listening in we will be back next week and hopefully edutain you some more. <laughs> we have well, lots you're, pretty, of, you're pretty good at that. Lots of edutainment Maybe you need here. to tell more jokes. Maybe I should. It gets real serious in the middle of our show. It really does. It really does. <laughs> this is Joe Alton, Break MD, and Amy Alton, the RMP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Bye-bye. week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.